Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. We all stand on the shoulders of people who went ahead of us and made it possible for us to achieve what we do today. And we owe it to them to keep moving the ball down the field. We all have a role to play. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Brenda Bergman, a 1978 graduate of NYU Law and a retired captain in the Fire Department of New York. It sounds so tough and glamorous both. I'm so pleased to re- it is. It is. <laughs> I'm so pleased to welcome you, Brenda, to the podcast today to discuss, among other topics, your unusual path after law school and experience as a woman firefighter. Thanks for having me, Jeannie. So because this podcast is oriented around women, I always like to start with this. What was your experience as a law student, first of all, and as a young lawyer? Well, I had gone to graduate school before I came to NYU to go to law school, so I was not right out of college, and I was going into law school at a time when women were just starting to go into law school in larger numbers. Uh, I don't think NYU, maybe there was 30% of the class was, was women, and in my class, we had a number of women who had not come right out of college like me. Some had had families and, and were going back to school, so there were a number of older more mature, shall we say, women in class with me. We call those owls, you know, Oh, I, I, the older, wiser law students. Oh, well, that's that's a nice way of, of thinking of it because I, I found that to be the case with a lot of my friends that were older. But, you know, there were still a lot of issues um, when I was in law school with respect to women speaking up in class, women being asked to take leadership positions in the law school. But, you know, I was in there to get a degree and to go out and practice law because I saw law as a way of achieving social justice, Mm -hmm. which was one of the reasons why I left graduate school in history and came to NYU. I think sometimes that that's one of the fatal flaws of young law students is uh, we confuse law with justice. (laughs) <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> I did. And, you know, it was kind of a, an awakening for me uh, to discover how incredibly conservative legal thinking is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that you have to find a precedent from 1492 to support your argument in court in a brief, you know, was was kind of disturbing to me because a lot of the things that I... Um, wanted to achieve had no legal precedent Mm -hmm. and the legislation had not been written or if it had just been passed or cases had not really wended their way through the courts to come down with settled law. So I'll give you an example. One was sexual harassment in the workplace Mm -hmm. and yes, we had Title VII, but a lot of the EEOC's um, guidance in terms of what constituted sexual harassment indeed even what the definition of sexual harassment was in the workplace had not been formulated when I was in law school. And so when I got out of law school and I could not get a job as a lawyer immediately, I went and volunteered for a group called Working Women's Institute, which was one of the first groups that was attempting to help working women with sexual harassment issues at their jobs. And I volunteered for them. I wrote a little handbook on, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace for, with the help of Working Women's Institute. And, you know, that was very exciting. I have to say that I wasn't a super-duper <laughs> law student. Uh, I was a much better college student and graduate student. I met a lot of incredibly smart people at NYU. I formed friendships. But my favorite thing to do was the hands-on stuff. So my favorite thing in law school was the employment law clinic, which at that point was taught by um, David Raff. And I met other students there, and we were actually representing people. And just to show you how far out your impact can go, 
in time, I recently got, I don't know, Facebook message or something from a woman I had represented as a law student before an unemployment benefits hearing. And she had contacted me to say thank you and how she still remembered me. And her mother had always been, you know, really thankful that NYU and I had represented this woman in her unemployment claim. I mean, that is the kind of thing that I really wanted to do. I want to have an impact, a real impact on people's lives. So there is the upside of social justice and the law. Brian Stevenson, I recently heard him say that law students shouldn't lose track of the fact that they shouldn't lose their optimism in law school, that social justice can, in fact, be enacted by the law. And my case against the New York City Fire Department for sex discrimination in the hiring process for firefighters, a perfect example of that. So, you know, uh, but for Laura Sager from NYU and also many of her law school students, her clinic students, including Vicki Bean, (laughs) that name might ring a bell with some law school students. You know, I would not have been able to be a New York City firefighter in all likelihood. And in fact, it probably would have taken, I don't know how many years, maybe decades, before women actually would have come on the job in New York City as firefighters. You're sitting here, we're recording this podcast in September 2017. It's a fitting time to have this conversation, since this month marks two huge anniversaries, uh, notable for you. It's been 40 years since you filed the gender discrimination lawsuit against the city and the fire department of new york and 35 since the women firefighters joined the department and as a result of your successful legal challenge some massive changes have happened can you talk to our listeners about what led you to apply for the fire department as a third-year law student and the circumstances around your lawsuit that was a pretty big deal why i applied well (laughs) this is you know this is the, the the perennial question and Actually, my answer to this question has changed a little bit over time. But some things have remained the same. Those are my favorite answers, Brenda. Yeah, one thing was I had a a law school classmate named Art Delibert who uh, sat next to me in, I don't know, torts or something. And he was a fire buff. He had been a volunteer firefighter. And he was running all around to fires all over New York City. And we had quite a large number of them at that point in time, 1975 to 78. Wait, you're saying that in law school, you had a volunteer fire department? A guy from another department, not New York City, but he had volunteered, and he was my classmate, and he was a friend of mine, and he was in my study group, and he would tell me about all these fires he was going to, and, and uh, you know, I saw how much he enjoyed knowing about firefighting and how much he missed being able to do firefighting which he wasn't able to do as a volunteer wait in a second City. are what? you an adrenaline junkie well um maybe so then <laughs> and then the other thing was that my late father-in-law represented the fire officers union in new york city for uh over 30 years until um i won my lawsuit and they fired him because they blamed him for even though He was not responsible for me coming on the job. They uh, were angry at him for having a daughter-in-law that uh, got women on the job. So in any event, I had met a bunch of fire officers in New York City, and I saw how much they loved their job. Mm -hmm. And I'd always thought about having a civil service job. My parents had emphasized that, but I did not want to be a cop. And I wanted to do something where I could help people immediately when people don't know who else to call they call the new york city fire department Mm -hmm. and we go and we do whatever we can for them and it seemed like such a great challenge but also great service to new york and you don't sit behind a desk all day long you go into work and you have no idea what you're going to be called on to do you're required to know a little bit about a great number of things. You have to be a little bit of an electrician, a little bit of a plumber. You know, you have to know about firefighting. You have to now. You have to know about hazardous materials and emergency medical work. So this really appealed to me. But women had never been allowed to 
apply even to become a New York City firefighter. It didn't matter if you were an Olympic caliber athlete or if you were, had the title of strongest woman in the world. You could not even apply to be a firefighter if you had been born female until 1977. So the quota for women in the New York City Fire Department was zero. Hmm. And then in 1977, my next door neighbor, R.E. Friedman, who was a law school classmate of mine, knocked on my door late one night, and R.E. knew I was interested in the in firefighting, and I had submitted my name to the personnel department, all that. He knocks on my door. He said, do you know that the fire department exam filing is closing on Monday? This was like a Saturday night, and I had never even heard personnel department hadn't contacted me like they were supposed to to let me know the filing was going on I had not even heard so I rushed down and filed and then the fire department had changed the physical abilities test there's two parts to getting on the department in those days one was a written test 100 multiple choice questions basically and the other was a physical abilities test so Coincidentally, when women were first allowed to apply, the fire department decides they have to change their physical abilities test. And prior to that, it had been pass-fail. It had certain things that you had to do. They changed it to make it what the personnel guy that was in charge of the test said under oath. This was the hardest test that we ever gave for anything. So... All this publicity about women coming on the job started to circulate in all the newspapers. And what they were saying, what, was, what the media was saying was, this test will be impossible for any woman to pass, the physical <laughs> abilities test. And I was, I was a jock. I was way more physically fit than I am now. I was a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to train really hard for this test. I'm going to pass this test. So I trained really hard for this test. I chopped wood. I cross-country skied. I ran laps. I I'm having did sprints. A, I'm having a vision of Rosie the Riveter here. Oh, I was just running around. I was carrying my ex-husband up and down the stairs on my back. You know, I was doing crazy stuff. So then I went and took the test. And without going into a lot of gory detail about what happened at the test, I did not pass the test. But even... More significantly, no woman of the approximately 90 women that took the physical portion of the firefighter exam passed the test. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of things that they had stuck into the test, which I felt were not related to the task of actually determining whether people, men and women, candidates, could be trained to be firefighters. So I'll give you an example. You had to carry a 120-pound duffel bag, throw it up on your shoulder, run up three flights of stairs with it, and then run back down three flights of stairs with it in a certain amount of time. That task is, is not performed on the fire ground. We drag people if we have to carry them in mm-hmm. any way. Usually there's more people involved than one person. If it's one person, we... Th- they have legs and arms that we, you know, use to be able to grab them and stuff, not a duffel bag. So there were all kinds of activities, a standing broad jump, a bent arm hang from a chinning bar, nutty stuff that didn't really measure the abilities I felt that were needed to be trained to be a firefighter. So it so was not relevant. Not relevant to the job. And I knew mm-hmm. enough about employment law at that point to know that under the guidelines of the EEOC for tests to be legal Mm -hmm. uh, for employment that they had to be proven to be job related and uh, so I went to Laura Sager in the women's rights clinic at NYU you were a third year law student I was a third year law student I didn't know Laura I went to Laura and I said, Laura, listen, I didn't say Laura, I said Professor Sager, listen, (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is what happened, and I think that if we go down, and you and me, Mm -hmm. uh, go down to the personnel department, talk to the head of personnel, and point out the flaws in their testing process, that they will undoubtedly change the test to make it job-related because they will see the merits of our arguments, and we won't even have to bring a lawsuit. <laughs> and it'll just be over snap, you know? 
and furthermore, I can get Bella Abzug to go along with us. And so hopefully that name rings a bell with your audience. But Bella mm-hmm. being a very determined feminist and congresswoman and representative for women in New York and fantastic. So, yes, Bella went down with Laura and I. And we went to talk to this guy, and he basically laughed in our faces. Wow. Yeah. So then Laura very wisely when she agreed to help me bring the lawsuit, and I was the sole named class plaintiff. None of the other women who failed the exam, or indeed any of the other men who had failed the exam, challenged the legitimacy of the physical part of the exam. Brenda, I always thought this was a class action. You it was did this a class under- action, but I was a sole named class plaintiff. So the first thing that the city did was to go to the judge, Judge Charles Sifton, in the Eastern District, Judge Sifton initially was not particularly sympathetic to my case. And they went to the judge and they said, listen, this Berkman character is just a bra-burning feminist. She doesn't really want to be a firefighter. You know, she has no standing to bring this lawsuit. And if they had succeeded in tossing me out as a named class plaintiff, that would have been the end of the lawsuit. So I had to go in and testify under oath that, in fact, I really did want to be a firefighter and that if I was offered the opportunity, if I won my lawsuit and passed the subsequent test, that I would indeed quit my practice of law and take the job. So I testified under oath that I would do that because I really did want to be a firefighter. Sure. So the judge fortunately believed me, and he let the lawsuit go forward. So then Laura realized that as smart as her law students were, this was a huge case and was going to involve lots of expert witnesses and depositions and a lengthy trial. And because of the expertise that would be needed to show that the test was illegal. So she went and got a white shoe law firm, Debevoise and Plimpton. Mm -hmm. Now, Debevoise and Plimpton were not experts in employment law, but they made themselves experts in employment law. Robert King was a senior partner that was in on this, but there were many other lawyers that were involved in this and experts. And also, you know, just the sheer amount of money that's required and resources, you know, the people who stay up all night doing the Xeroxing, the people who are responsible for getting the papers filed and everything. It's a huge investment. Huge I don't like to use that word anymore, sorry. A large investment <laughs> oh, yes. of time and money and resources. So fortunately, Deba Voice, you know, was able to provide a lot of that, wow. as, as did NYU, of course, but it was really a team effort. That's very, very impressive. I've had so many conversations with lawyers at different stages of their careers who've experienced overt sexism mm-hmm. and, unfortunately, covert sexism. Um, we call it unconscious bias in the biz um, and in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I've experienced that myself. I have to tell you that years ago when I first met you, you know this, you and I have talked mm-hmm. about this. After talking to you, I felt both inspired and and full of despair. That story kind of kicked my ass a little. I thought, wow, if Brenda can do this and be so fierce about this, um, and her story, I, I mean, it made a difference to me. I know it's made a difference to lots and lots of people. It made me willing to speak up. It made, I, you know, I was, I didn't have, I wasn't brave in the sense that I wasn't physically fit. I had an office job and I was, you know, a savant at, at a IBM Selectric. You remember those days? Um, <laughs> yes. Was also in 19- and they lasted way too long in the fire department, <laughs> right. I might say, before we got computers um, finally. My boss used to press himself against my back and, you know, Boy. watch. Um, but it made me brave about speaking up later. And it made me pay attention to the young women in the law school now. And I think your example of how the law can bring about important change is important even now in 2017. We like to think that it's different now. And I'm not sure in our modern day that it's so different. I appreciate you saying that because, you know, as I mentioned to you, 
when you when you go about trying to achieve social change, you have no idea where the ripples will go. And I hope that you know it's not just young women wanting to be firefighters or even police officers or construction workers that are impacted. I hope that boys and girls see in my story the idea that, you know, if you have a passion that you want to pursue in life, the artificial barriers, not the very real barriers to doing things, but the artificial barriers based on gender, which have nothing to do with your ability to do or enjoy an occupation or an activity that that are based solely on whether you, by chance, happen to be a, born a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is just, in this day and age, that's just kind of crazy that that still exists. I, I'm discouraged sometimes by going through the children's toy department and seeing, you know, all the firefighting stuff. They have them sex segregated, so many of these do. stores, and it's just nuts. I mean, when I was growing up, we did not have Title IX. We did not have teams for, we did not have supported teams and athletic teams for girls. My mother tried to enroll me in um, Little League and, and when I was eight years old, and, you know, the coach called up, and uh, we tried to sneak me in as B. Berkman, you know, not Brenda <laughs> Berkman. But the coach called up and said, you know, B. Berkman, your daughter or your son? My mother says, my daughter. He said, sorry, can't do that. And then it took, you know, uh, another young woman and her family many years later to challenge Little League on that. Mm-hmm. You know, as a plaintiff, I think it was both an advantage and a disadvantage for me to be a lawyer. And I could expand on that a little bit. But also, I had a background in history. I had a bachelor's and a master's degree in history. And I did not see myself in the history books. I did not see stories written in history about women for the most part. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes, there was Clara Barton. You know, yes, there was Dolly Madison. But it was just such a tiny number of stories about women and what they had accomplished. And I thought, oh my goodness, there must be other women who have done important things. And I then set about as a history student to try and bring those stories to light. But I was also inspired by the stories of people of color, mm-hmm. disabled people, people who had been marginalized in our society, who had done great things and who had fought for their people, shall we say, but in fact, for all people to, you know, get rid of these areas of discrimination. And I was inspired by those stories. So I was very lucky, I feel, to have grown up in the civil rights era. By that, I mean the time in the 1950s and 1960s, where people of color were struggling to get the vote, were struggling to be able to use restrooms and swimming pools and things and equal education to white people. And I admired those people. And I saw not only how, how long and hard people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass, but then Martin Luther King and Robin Morgan and Gloria Steinem and all these people had struggled to make it possible for me to even go to law school, you know, and to then try and become a firefighter. And they had suffered tremendously. In some cases, some of these people had paid with their lives. Right. And, you know, they inspired me. And I was standing on their shoulders. And one thing I would like to tell your listening audience is that, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of people who went ahead of us and made it possible for us to achieve what we do today. Yeah. And we owe it to them to keep moving the ball down the field. You know, it's not right to say, oh, everything's everything's been done now, you know, and I have no role to play in this movement for social justice. We all have a role to play in this movement for social justice, not just for ourselves and our own groups that, you know, that may be suffering discrimination, but for all other groups and all other people. Because it's only when all people have, have equal opportunities that 
all people are truly free, including the privileged groups. I believe in little leadership. Um, you tell these stories, and I want to hear a little bit more about what it was like to be um, a young female firefighter in, in FDNY. Um, <laughs> Not fun. I know it wasn't fun. I've heard a little bit about it from uh, before. And it's an intimidating story for me. I, but I also believe in little leadership. And so I want to hear about that. And I also want to hear about those small things that we can do to avoid becoming spectators. Because I am very moved by that call to action that you just made. That um, on one hand, yes, you've had this experience and we're building on years and years of those, that directional, that should shape our lives. Um, that's that, that long arc toward justice. And it doesn't bend naturally. No, and sometimes it seems like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, sort of in that time frame right now. You know, and I, I knew that this was going to be a marathon and not a sprint. Um, but when I went into the fire department, you know, I think a lot of the group that went in, the first group that went in, and that was uh, about 40 women mm-hmm. that benefited from my lawsuit. When I won, these women sort of came out of the woodwork and they were, off, they were offered the opportunity and they trained to take the new physical exam and they passed the new physical exam. As a law student, I had worked on a sex discrimination case that the New York City police women had brought against the police department. And that's a long story. But I had met all these police women, and some of them had been on the job for a while, and yet when they challenged the sexism within the police department, they were retaliated against. And even though in some cases they were fairly senior women, they, you know, bad things happened to them. And so I knew that this was that winning the lawsuit was only going to be the first step in trying to, you know, actually integrate the fire department with women. So let's go back. Let's go back two steps. So you're with Laura Sager. Right. And you got Abzug on your side. Approximately we, Five we, years yep. of a fight. Mm-hmm. And you go like you're before Judge Sifton. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We, you prevail. We prevail. The city is forced to develop a new job-related uh, physical abilities test. Um, you know, uh, X number of women, about 50 women pass it. A little more than 40 of us all go into the fire department. And we had no real, certainly I had no real guidance about what was going to happen next. Because even though I knew some firefighters, I wasn't close friends with them, and I had never been to the fire academy, and I didn't know anything about firefighting. So we go to the fire academy, and the fire academy uh, turns into what I could des- I can only describe as open season on the women. Uh, the department really did nothing to prepare either the men or the women for this change in, uh, you know, in the organization. You were hazed. And, well, no, it went way beyond what you would even begin to define as hazing. It was sexual assault. It was physical assault. It was, you know, trying to make women quit, but doing so in such a, a violent and unacceptable way that women were hurt, you know, uh, What's amazing to me is that almost no women quit. Really? Um, And then a bunch of women got fired right out of training school. A bunch of women had to repeat the class. But some of the male instructors and uh, some of even some of our our male co-trainees, which is like unheard of that a probationary firefighter would dare to you know, engage in the kind of nasty behavior that they were engaging in against their women classmates, you know. it. When I say open season, I mean open season. There were almost no restraints on any man that wanted to take it into his head that he was going to try and make women quit and get women out of here and express his uh, very strong feelings about the inappropriateness of women being on the job. So, uh, you know, um, tools were dropped on women. Women, we, First of all, we didn't have equipment that fit us properly. So we'd be climbing the ladder 
the aerial ladder way up high, you know, four stories, six stories high, and our boots would fall off because we didn't have properly fitting boots. They literally weren't your size. No, they weren't our size, and they didn't have any our size, and they hadn't looked ahead to getting our size, even though they had five years to think about the possibility (laughs) that we might be coming on. They didn't have gloves in our size. Now, it's really hard to hold on to a tool when you don't have a properly fitting glove. All different kinds of things went on, just the most basic stuff. But then, you know, they changed the training activities to try and make us quit. So people, because there were guys that were unfortunately subjected to a lot of this along with us, you know, they gave us carbon monoxide poisoning um, in training school with their activities. You know, there was stuff that was going on. Women women got singed at uh, practice fires. And, and, you know, some of this was arguably, oh, this happens to trainees occasionally. But a lot of it was way beyond the pale. And the union did nothing to stick up for the probationary trainees because they didn't want to see us on the job either. They had come in on the side of the city to defend the test. And when the city threw in the towel after the Second Circuit upheld uh, Judge Sifton's order, and so the city throws in the towel and says they're not going to take an appeal to the Supreme Court. The union took the appeal to the Supreme Court, and the union was going to the papers and the television stations, thank God we didn't have the internet then, uh, and saying, you know, women don't, these women are going to threaten the lives of other firefighters and of the general public because they're weak and they're, you know, they shouldn't be allowed on the job, and women will cry and run away from danger. I mean, you know, just stupid stuff. But think about the time. I mean, it was the same time that women were first being allowed to, or they were trying to, run the Boston Marathon. You know, women were trying, Billie Jean King was trying to get equal pay for women in tennis. And in so many other jobs, you know, women were just pushing into it for the first time or speaking up about the unequal opportunities. So those were pretty heady days for women. And in addition I, to being hellaciously tenacious, yeah, which you did, yeah. you did you have to also be somewhat cheerful? I mean, how did you keep no, your no, wits I, about I'm you? No, no, I'm not cheerful. I'm not a cheerful person. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't <laughs> see you as being, I, I mean. I mean, I, I do have a great sense of humor, but I, you rarely saw that uh, in the How did you days. keep your wits about you? Well, first of all, uh, I had a lot of support. So my ex-husband supported me. I had friends that supported me. I had law school classmates that supported me. I had women's organizations that supported me. Mm -hmm. We had support, the women, from the Vulcan Society, the the African-American firefighters organization, because a lot of those black men had gone through similar kinds of discrimination and harassment throughout their careers, and they very much understood what we were going through. And... So I had a lot of support, and I would encourage anyone who is thinking about taking on a challenge uh, that they make sure they have people there in their corner because you're going to have some dark days. That's grim. And I had some really (laughs) dark days. I was sexually assaulted. I was, you know, I had my air tank drained. I had death threats sent to my house. I had people showing up at my apartment building trying to get in. I had people threatening to shoot me if I spoke at public events. I mean, it was bad stuff. And if you don't have, you know, that's hard to take by yourself, all therapy aside, you know, so uh, you need to really think about what alliances can I make? Who can I make common cause with? Who has similar kinds of issues that are willing to step up? And, you know, I had women out there on the street from now New York City and from other organizations that were demonstrating on our behalf, you know, and and that was important. That was that was a big help. When I go back to the very beginning of our conversation here, you said that one of the things that you liked most about law school was the part of law school that was hands-on. You're a very kinesthetic person. <laughs> you like doing stuff. Um, and that's that's just the way you're configured. Mm. 
It's interesting because now I think you're, I mean, you're also an artist. This business of being a firefighter and also a lawyer, how are they connected? Did you use your lawyerly skills as a firefighter? Um, Well, I spent more time in court as a firefighter than I ever did prior to becoming a firefighter. You know, I think it helped in some respects for my lawyers to have another lawyer to talk to because Mm -hmm. I had some sense, even though I wasn't an expert in employment law, that I had some sense of what was required of them. I had some sense of how long this was going to take. I had an actual income that helped support me while I was waiting for my case to be decided. So, you know, there were various aspects. I think, though, that I kind of had this idea that maybe the judge was was going to be able to stop the harassment in the firehouse, you know, and that there would, that if we just, you know, by we, I mean the first group of women firefighters, if we just made the department aware of what was going on and the court aware of what was going on, that this discrimination, harassment, and terrible things that were happening to some of the original group of women, that that would an end would be put to that because they would realize it's it's totally illegal. That didn't happen <laughs> in most cases, you know? I mean, we would have to go back to court, and not just for me, but for other women who were being discriminated against, and then there'd have to be like these little mini trials to deal with that. And no judge is going to be there with you the whole time that you're going through this experience. They simply can't. And, you know, even though Judge Sifton had sympathy for us, uh, I would say, you know, I think he also got a little exhausted with, with everything that was going on. And he was the subject of retaliation. There were demonstrations in front of his courthouse. The firefighter union organized a march from his courthouse across the Brooklyn Bridge to City Hall to say, you know, get rid of these women. And to his great credit, he stood firm on this. And he, even though he suffered personally as a result of of his decision in this case, he, you know, always believed that what he had done was right. And the lawyers who worked on my case and the case of the other women, they stuck with it. And even though this went on and on and on, really for 10 more years after we got on uh, to take to resolve the, just the beginning issues of, of women coming on as firefighters. So they stuck with it. And they believe that this was worth doing. And indeed, both Bob King and Laura Sager have said repeatedly that they consider this to be among some of the most important legal work that they have done in their whole careers. And I feel good about that because, you know, <laughs> they put a lot into this emotionally and physically and legally. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they feel that way about the work. Well, I'll tell you, this is, this is interesting for me because I, I see you as incredibly tough. It's hard to be around you and in conversation without seeing you as tough. And it's hard to be in conversation with you without realizing that you're incredibly resilient. But you're also so warm and balanced and generous. And I love the fact that you also have an artist's soul. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of having an outside passion, something independent of your career that you maybe that keeps you in balance that you can dedicate yourself to? It's so easy, I think, to get lost in the in the pain of what you've gone through. <laughs> I, I think we call it the rat race here, but we see a lot of lawyers push toward their ambition and their billable hours and they talk a lot uh, these days about work-life balance and um, just the ambition of of being a lawyer. When in your life did you did you find that moment of uh, finding time for yourself? Uh, when I retired, I hate really? to disappoint you uh, from the fire department. I'm talking about not from the practice. Balance of law. is balance is bunk, right? Yeah, balance is kind of <laughs> bunk. Um, you know, it's not. It's not bunk and. 
I had abandoned, if you want to call it that, my creative side when I was in junior high school and I decided I couldn't take art classes anymore because um, it wouldn't help me get a college scholarship. But I had always wanted to go back to it. And it was kind of a joke with people who knew me because my partner would give me, you know, some art materials like for my birthday or for Christmas or something. And I'd say, thank you very much. And I'd look at them and I'd put them in the closet. And then <laughs> before they got terrible, I'd give them away to a charity for somebody else to use. Because uh, a lot of firefighters do outside activities um, in addition to firefighting. Many of them have second jobs. So they're digging pools or they have some kind of construction business or they uh, some even teach part time. So, you know, Brenda, Brenda, I know firefighters who are the most amazing cooks. Yeah. And also some people cook and, you know, they do all kinds of things. What I did on my off time was my full-time second job was uh, organizing. And so while we were still in the fire academy, I convinced the, the first group of women firefighters, we needed an organization to help us uh, go through this experience and support one another. So um, based on the Police Women Endowment Association, we formed the United Women Firefighters. Then when my own department rejected me as as being able to learn anything or contribute in any way to the New York City Fire Department, I looked outside my department for professional development, and I became involved in, in the legal advisor for the uh, Women in the Fire Service Organization, which ultimately became a national organization and and an international organization that was just starting up in 1982 when I first came on the job so you know and then I got involved in other fire service organizations and in a way the FDNY did me a favor because not too many firefighters in in my organization look outside for professional development not in those days Mm -hmm. they do more now I think but not in those days so I was getting all these opportunities. I got to travel the world, really, as a firefighter. The London Fire Brigade brought me over. The Paris Fire Brigade brought me over. I became a White House fellow. I was the first professional firefighter to be a White House fellow. You know, I had all these opportunities um, as a result of looking outside my own little box. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that that was something I did. But... It was only when I retired and I was looking around for what was I going to do next. And, and I looked at using my training and experience. I had another degree that I had gotten, a master's in, in emergency management. I had uh, a chief fire officer certification. I looked at the UN. I had friends at the UN. I thought, you know, maybe I can find something else in emergency management, emergency response, disaster response that I could get involved in. And so I went to my friend Gloria Steinem and I said, you know, Gloria, I'm looking for something. And she said, oh, I'll call Madeline Albright for you. I mean, you know, (laughs) it was like I had opportunity. And then I thought, no, I can't do this anymore. I really can't. I want to do something creative. Even though I had no background or training in art, I thought, because mm. like I had no background or training in firefighting. So I threw away all that training experience again and said, I'm going to go to the Art Students League. And that's where I discovered stone lithography. And for me, being able to create something mm-hmm. um, it was just a, you know, it's just been a wonderful blessing, really. And I, I feel guilty sometimes about being an artist. You know, after all, it seems very selfish to me. But I try and talk myself out of that feeling because I know that art has things to say that open windows for our culture and insights into our culture for other people, and I can give my art to charitable organizations to help them raise money, and I can make political statements with my art, and I can express, you know, feelings of other people. Like I've, I organized some collaborative art projects where we all work together to, to express our feelings about uh, the events of September 11th, and you know, art 
art is important. And so I don't know if I'm a particularly good artist, but the 9-11 Memorial and Museum did collect my 36 Views series of number one World Trade Center. So I've seen those. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's something I would say. I, I waited till I retired, but a lot of younger people, it seems these days, are doing what I did early in my law career, and that is reevaluating. There's a guy that's written a book called When to Jump. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, reevaluating what is it exactly that you want to do in life. You know, life, this is not a rehearsal, <laughs> this is it. So uh, you may not. You may not change from the law right away, or you may go into a different aspect of law, whether it's teaching or working in an area that's not necessarily the strict practice of law. But, you know, don't be afraid to at least investigate things that you think you might enjoy doing. So one of the things that I want to ask you, just because I know we've got time constraints, is you've had a huge life. There's no denying it. How can we help the younger generation find the courage to take action? I have this vision of you finding uh, rubbish in your boots, going through training, um, and fighting off terrible things and, and maintaining your idealism under terrible circumstances. And your story is, as I've mentioned, a bit intimidating. How can we help the crop that's coming up behind us take action? I think you have to be brave. You know, for me, the the thing that required the most bravery was not going into burning buildings. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm not in any way uh, saying that that's not a scary thing. It is a scary thing. Even after you've had training and experience, you know, you realize that this is a job that you could die doing, um, but you're doing it for the benefit of others and you're trying to help others, which you know, something that always gives you the motivation to do it. But I think that it required a lot more bravery for me to stay with this. And, you know, at any point, especially in the beginning, I could have quit and gone back to the practice of law or done something entirely different with my life. I had a lot of options. I was lucky that way. You know, I was educated. I was not impoverished. Um, I I was had the happy accident of being born in the United States. You know, I realized that it's really the hard things in life that are worth doing. And I know that sounds trite, maybe a little cliched, but but it, it, it is the case that we're not put here just to take up space. And if all we end up doing is, you know, just sort of the safe things in life, then we've missed a lot of opportunities to make our lives of value. And um, yeah, I think about all my friends who never had that opportunity. Yeah. Um, so you can't waste that. You know, you have to be brave. You have to take those steps, even though they may seem daunting at the time, uh, that will result in things getting better. It sounds like that would, that's probably advice you'd give your 1L self. I don't know what back. 1L means. <laughs> your first, your they must have changed the law school lingo since <laughs> I was here in the dinosaur age. Your yeah, I would give my law school self that advice. I think my law school self had some sense of that advice from, from history, but mm -hmm. you know, you never really know what's going to happen. And there's many paths that I could have taken as I as I went along you know when I after I was a White House fellow I had opportunities to leave the fire department and do other kinds of things I realized that the hands-on the immediate gratification of being able to help people in their greatest hour of need was something that appealed to me more than anything else one thing I wish my little law school student person had done was take a media relations class mm. and or training of some sort because I think my lawyers certainly I didn't recognize how savaged women were going to be by the media I have a lot of empathy for Hillary Clinton <laughs> and so you know to be able to understand how the media works and 
how do you how do you turn the narrative from a negative narrative or how do you at least try to turn the narrative from a negative narrative to a positive um, more inclusive narrative that more people can get behind that they can support that they can see themselves in and that was something I had no background in and I really wish I had had a little bit more sense of of how important that would be in terms of of our uh, getting su public support and also support from the fire service. We often wish that our younger selves were savvier. <laughs> huh. uh, what would your young law student self think of you now, do you think? Well, I would hope that the young law school self would think, way to go. <laughs> you know, I'm, I mean... I'm I'm not going to knock myself over patting myself on the back mm -hmm. but I I think that you know I can acknowledge that that there was something that changed as a result of what I did um with the New York City Fire Department and the thing about the New York City Fire Department because there were women all over the country who were integrating their fire departments but the thing about the New York City Fire Department that offered me the opportunity was to have a much wider impact because our fire department is so huge and so highly regarded around the world that people try and pay attention to what we're doing here. Yeah. Now, we're not always the best example of the way to do things, and we certainly were not in the case of bringing women on the job. But fire service and other non-traditional occupations, I think they learned from the negative Mm -hmm. as well they saw what was going on here and they thought "Ooh, we don't want any of that and so they tried to do things in a better way so you know I think that 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 was was something I feel was important work that I I could do with my life and um, you know I'm proud of that well I will tell you sitting here woman to woman I will say way to go <laughs> thanks so much Jeannie I appreciate it thank you For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership. leadership.